You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 27th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, everyone. And did you know on May 30th in 1898, it was Sir William Ramsay and Morris Travers discovered Krypton, the element Krypton. Wow. Awesome. That's cool. By doing an experiment. Very, very cool. from Superman, right? Yes. Yes. That is the exact same one. Yes. Later, William Ramsay won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for discovery of a bunch of noble gases, actually. Right, and then he became a supervillain, didn't he? <laughs> Was that it? Well, we have a lot of news to get through this week. We have Phil Plate coming on later in the show to talk about the science of Star Trek and some other things. But first, some news. The first news item is yet more evidence that Jenny McCarthy is an idiot, by which I mean that her anti-vaccination propaganda, along with all of her other colleagues, is actually causing disease and uh, spreading mischief around. We've seen increases in measles and mumps, and now we're seeing pockets of whooping cough in the unvaccinated. This is a new study that uh, was published in Pediatrics this week. They found that those children who were not vaccinated with the DPT vaccine, the one that is that includes the pertussis vaccine against whooping cough, were 23 times more likely to develop the disease than children who got all of their vaccines on time. That's a pretty dramatic increase. Yeah, it's not just more evidence that she's an idiot. It's more evidence that she's a dangerous idiot, which yeah, is exactly. why we keep bringing her up week after week yeah. and just want her to please shut up. Well, I just went to the Jenny McCarthy body count page. You guys have seen that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's up yep. to 168 preventable deaths and 44,901 preventable illnesses. Thank you. So this was actually a study uh, looking at patients enrolled in Kaiser Permanente in Colorado, 751 children. So it's a fairly sizable study. And they found that of all the cases of whooping cough or pertussis that presented there, 11 to 12% were in the unvaccinated now, interestingly, if you reading the comments to these articles is always interesting because you have you know random people throwing out their comments, and somebody said, "Wait a minute, eleven to twelve percent were in the unvaccinated. That means you know eighty eight to eighty nine percent were in the vaccinated. So I guess the vaccine doesn't work." <laughs> Classic error in statistics. There, right. the the reason why the majority of the cases happen in the vaccinated is because the vaccinated um, tremendously outnumber the unvaccinated. You have to look at the percentage of vaccinated versus the percentage of unvaccinated. And there we see, again, the 23 times increase, not 23 percent, 23 times increase in risk of, de- of developing whooping cough if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaccinated. So yet more evidence that vaccines actually work, hmm. yeah. which is incredible because a lot of the anti-vaxxers say there's no evidence that vaccines work. Unless, if you, of course, you discount all that evidence that it works. Look, don't confuse us with facts, Steve. Right. It's incredible. As we get older, we hear more about people, you know, uh, the Jenny McCarthy's and other folks out there who are who are advocating against vaccination. I don't recall hearing anyone speaking out against vaccination in the 70s, the 80s, and so forth. It seems to be just 
this they were I mean, the, phenomenon. Yeah, I'm sure they were a, out it, there. It's on the rise. It's on the rise because they're they're well funded and they got some celebrity idiots backing them up. But it it is on the rise. But it's been a you know vaccine anti vaccinationist kooks have been around as long as vaccines, and they probably always will be. Jay, this next news item is right up your alley. Scientologists in France are on trial for fraud. Uh huh. I'm not going to lie to you. I love this kind of stuff so much it just makes me want to giggle. Like a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like uh, the Parisians in France. That was deliberate. As, they are, as, yeah. opposed, <laughs> as opposed to the Parisians in Germany? <laughs> yeah. they, uh, they are not Paris so thieving free. Uh, Paris, Tommy, Texas. Paris Hilton. Excuse me. <laughs> They're not so thieving free as Tommy Boy would like them. The, uh, the local Scientology headquarters... Apparently, like some Scientology bookshop, I guess I don't really know like what the setup is, but there, it's just two different entities there. Both uh, pretty much make up the Church of Scientology in France. Uh, they're on trial for fruit. That's, That's basically right. what, what's going on. So the quick skinny on it is there was uh, seven leading French Scientology members who were basically put on the docket as uh, they're being accused of fraud. Some are actually charged with illegally practicing as pharmacists as well. Those people could actually spend up to 10 years in prison with fines. Uh, this started in 98 when a complaint was registered by a woman who said she joined the church after members approached her, I guess, in the street and convinced her to do one of their personality tests. You remember when uh, Rebecca told us a story? One of yep. my favorite Rebecca stories, by the way. It was pretty much that's their MO. They do that in yeah. the street a lot, and they, they come off very... Um, Friendly and all that, and they're you know they're just basically like hey take a free personality test. Well, they, this is what they're doing in France as well. And as this typical story goes, she joined. She paid heavily in over time. I mean, this particular woman paid about twenty one thousand euros, which she purchased vitamins that were said uh, that, that she was told were going to purify her sauna. Which I actually haven't even heard of the uh, Scientology sauna treatments before. And mm-hmm. the typical e-meter sessions, which oh, yeah. which Rebecca described in detail at that time. What's the sauna thing? Is sauna meaning she just like sweat out the toxins sort of sauna? Yeah, like the continuing the purification thing. Yeah. So after her complaint was made public, a bunch of other people came out and started filing complaints too. And some re- reported spending hundreds of thousands of, of euros for the same crap, which... You know, we've heard this before, but yet again, here's, you know, more evidence that people are dumping tons of money into that church. And as uh, as these cases were investigated, um, it was discovered that all the people were ha- harassed by phone calls to their homes, nightly visits to their homes, um, where these people would come and actually pressure them to take out more bank loans and to pay their outstanding bills to the church. And all seven of the plaintiffs were considered to be vulnerable by psychological ex- experts. So I guess they, you know, they did some psychological testings on these people and lo and behold, the Scientologists are preying upon weak-minded people, which is n- no big surprise there. And to quickly finish up here, investigators uh did some testing on the e-meters. They found out that they're useless. They found out that the vitamins that they were selling actually I guess they were powerful enough or you know, the, the, the concoction that they had come up with, they were actually considered to be a medication and they shouldn't have actually even been selling these things legally there. Right. And uh, you know, right now, Scientology has a pretty serious problem in France. Um, there was members being convicted of fraud in 97 and in 99. And in 2002, 
the court fined them for violating privacy laws and said that they could be dissolved. Uh, they could be dissolved if involved in similar cases, and, and here are the similar cases. So a, guil- a guilty verdict would mean that um, the practice of Scientology would have to be would be ended. They'd have to end it in France. Well, I think that it means that they would have to stop selling their services, at least, which is the real thing. Like people can worship anything they want; they can practice Scientology if they want. But the problem is that uh, Scientologists are peddling this this crap, and it's about time somebody took them to task for it. Um, it's amazing to me that in the U.S. we have so many protections in place for consumers, but as soon as uh, it's a consumer of something that happens to be religious in nature. All of a sudden, we throw all those protections away and allow these people to keep pulling one over on on the gullible, and it's just really pathetic. So I, yeah, I hope call that- it, call it a loophole or whatever. But you're right, Rebecca. I mean, it's one of those deals where you know you you use the the term religion, and then people have to start treading mm-hmm. lightly and walking on eggshells around it. And yeah. the bottom line is it doesn't matter if it's a religion or if it's just some regular huckster selling snake oil. This is crap. It's hurting people. It's it's damaging people that, that are easily taken advantage of, and we really need to, to change our laws worldwide to, to fight things like this. Well, the interesting thing is that L. Ron Hubbard was trying to sell his you know fake treatments back before he, he thought of the idea of Scientology, and he basically invented a religion to surround his snake oil in order to give it cover. A vehicle, right. as it were. Yeah, and that, that's happening more and more these days. So a lot of alternative medicine now are very specifically couching their claims in religious terms in order to get cover under, under this umbrella of religion because freedom of religion is so protected in this country that uh, it is this huge loophole that they can go through. And sometimes they're very overt and callous about it. So that that's happening more and more. And it's really, it's a, it is an interesting dilemma because certainly I'm against fraud and, you know, callously using religion in order to, to conceal fraud and, and to abuse and take advantage of, of vulnerable populations, what, which is what they're being accused of here. Uh, but at the same time, you know, how do you parse that? So if you say, okay, well, the e-meter is fake, and they're accepting, you know, lots of money from people in order to sell this bogus service, which scientifically can't be shown to do anything. And then you get to the problem of, well, how do you distinguish that from pretty much anything that religion is selling or doing or accepting donations for? You know what I mean? Because none of it's scientific. None of it's provable. I, I know you probably don't mean it in the, this way, but... I've heard that before, and I in a, used in a very fallacious way. In that, um, you know, I, I think it's what's it called the spectrum fallacy or what have you. But there are there are always going to be loopholes. There are always going to be ways around it. You can always say, "Oh, I'm not selling this. I'm just asking for donations." Blah blah blah. Right. But we have to go after the uh, the outright frauds who are literally selling merchandise and selling bogus pseudoscience and you know it just as a form of basic consumer protections we do it for every other business why shouldn't we do it for religion i i agree and i think the the answer probably is that the the courts you know that judges have to make a this individual decision about individual cases is is this a legitimate practice of religion or is this 
a commercial fraudulent transact- transaction that is overtly hiding behind religion. And if, if the courts do not feel empowered to make those kind of judgments, then con artists do just have free reign to do whatever they want. All they have to do is just slap the label of religion on it, and they basically get a free pass. So I think the problem is that in this country, you know, I think that there's a lot of reluctance to do that, you know, that the, the political will isn't there. Yeah, that's true. That's the problem. A couple of interesting science news items this week. There was an interesting paper published recently looking at the development of RNA as sort of the chemical evolution that led from you know non-life to life. So this is this is a, one of the huge enduring mysteries in science. How did life arise uh, on the planet Earth from non-life, and what we we, we know must have happened. Obviously, there was a period of time when there was no life on Earth, there was a, and then at some point there was life, so life had to come from somewhere. The thinking is that there, that there was a period of purely chemical evolution. And what I mean by that is that chemical reactions alone were creating the molecules that eventually would lead to life without any system, living system already in place to help those chemical reactions along, Right. So in a, in a cell, for example, uh, there, we have proteins that are made by the cell that then act as enzymes to catalyze reactions. But without life, you just have the chemicals reacting by themselves without organic catalysts helping those reactions along. So any system that we come up with to explain how life arose has to allow for these chemicals to react without life already existing. One of the main hypotheses as to the pathway that chemical evolution took in order to create the first life, the first cells, is that it was RNA, that RNA, or ribonucleic acid, was the first molecule that was able to make a copy of itself. Once you have that, once you have a molecule that could copy itself, and then there could be you know, variation, mutations in those copies, and, and the, the copies that are better at copying themselves you know, are the ones that will tend to, to survive and you know, compete better for raw material and they'll make more copies of themselves, right? So once you have that, you have the foot in the door to evolution and then you're off to the races. But how did we get to the first RNA molecule? That's the question of this new research. The problem with the RNA hypothesis has been that nobody knew how the chemical reactions could have taken place in order to arrive at RNA. And, and some people say, well, it's impossible. The, the reactions are too slow, or they really just can't happen. RNA couldn't have been the first molecule to bridge the chemical evolution to, to, to life. So what these researchers did was they basically they created a what they call a plausible prebiotic environment, right? So they duplicated as much as we, as we can, as much as we understand, the likely environment of the early Earth before life existed. And then they tried to find out if there were different chemical pathways that could lead to the major building blocks of RNA in order to bypass these roadblocks. So if you imagine there was sort of blocks in the chemical pathways to make RNA, that reactions that just wouldn't happen. So they said, okay, well, maybe if these alternate pathways... Uh, were were plausible or existed in these conditions that could get you to RNA. And they basically showed that it worked. So they, they were able to show, and uh, again, we'll link to the actual 
to the actual paper, but the, I'm not going to go over the actual chemical reactions because it's you know it's hard to describe in words and it's very technical and detailed. But the bottom line is, would you rather do is, an interpretive dance of some sort? I could, I could do it in interpretive <laughs> dance. You could mime it too. God, that would be so awesome. Just write right. a haiku. All right, all right, I'm going to mime it. Ready? Ready. Uh-huh. Oh, I totally get oh. it. Okay. Uh, oh, now it makes so sense. So cool. So this is actually, this is, sounds a little dry, but the bottom line is this is a huge step forward in figuring out how life could have arisen on Earth because now there's a plausible pathway to get to RNA. And once you get to RNA, there's other research, which we actually talked about on the show before, to show how in an RNA world that could lead to self-organization and cells and life. You're basically, we're really starting to put the pieces together and showing how life could have arisen on the Earth. We probably will never be able to show how it actually did occur because, you know, it's, we're talking about four billion years ago and things don't fossilize very well when you're talking about just chemicals, you know. Really all we need to do is show a plausible pathway that life could have taken uh, and that's really what we're getting very close to and this takes us a huge step of the way. So... Very exciting research, in my opinion, that kind of, I thought, got lost in the, in the shuffle. Not a lot of people were talking about it, but I found it very, uh, very exciting. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> the next news item is about how intelligent birds are, which we'd love to talk about on this show. Which they... No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know. The, the term bird brains uh, will suddenly become a, uh, you know, a... Uh, a compliment. Uh, a compliment. Is that the word you were looking right, for? Instead yeah. of insult. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the term bird brains will become a compliment as opposed to an insult uh, to be thrown around after, uh, after you learn about this. So they've got these birds called rooks, and which is uh, part of the... Um, They're in the crow family. They are in the crow family. They look almost just like crows. What the scientists did is the, th- these tests for these rooks in which the rooks were challenged to try to obtain their food in a certain way in which it was put into this container. And the rooks had to figure out exactly what it was they needed to do in order to get the food to come out. Turns out they could only go straight ahead or sideways. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. They They were able, the rooks were able to select the right tools for the job by, for example, choosing the right size little rock to put down the, the plastic cylinder, which would then drop onto the plate that released the food. And the rooks were able to discern, apparently, which rocks were, would, would be the best ones to put down that cylinder in order to get the food to come out. They had four, they had four rooks, different rooks that they test, and they just about in all the tests that they, that they presented to them uh, all showed the capacity to figure out this problem. Uh, the other thing that they saw them doing, the rooks were making tools. They, it, it one, in one series of tests, they had to take uh, the rooks, utilized a straight wire, and they actually put a little bend in the wire in order to create a hook so that, so that they could lift out the little plate underneath and bring it up through the cylinder and hook their food out that way. Fascinating stuff. I mean, to see it, and there is video that accompanies these articles, and to actually see it happening is, uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, the, this family of birds, the uh, which includes jays and crows and whatnot, are are very intelligent and actually have demonstrated this ability for problem solving, this exact kind of problem solving behavior, uh, and it really is amazing. They were able, to, they, as you said, they fashioned tools. They actually like stripped twigs 
to fashion them to be useful. And they could actually even do two-step problem solving. So if you had to, uh, like they had to obtain a rock from from one trap in order to use it in the next step to get the food, they, they figured out how to do that. So right. really incredible. And of course, completely separate evolutionary line from, say, primates like chimpanzees. And yet they're showing about the same level of tool use that chimpanzees do. Uh, in fact, they were specifically compared to them you know, by the researchers. So that's uh, I mean, who would have thought? I mean, that the, these little birds could be could be so bright when it comes to this kind of you know problem solving and tool fashioning. And, and in nature, a rook's not going to come across a piece of wire <laughs> on its own in order to fashion it into a tool in order to get its meal. You know, it was it was you know this this caged animal is you know specifically given this this obstacle to get this food out and it's presented this wire and it actually made made a hook out of it it's just, it's just fascinating that's a really interesting point that these birds are displaying abilities that they do not have to use in nature and that they don't display in nature uh, so that would beg the question of well, then why did they evolve the ability to do this? But that's the adaptationalist fallacy, right? That anything mm. a creature can do or a life form can do, it must have specifically evolved. And what this shows is that, well, no, you know, you, you evolve a certain amount of intelligence because it, that does have a survival advantage. But intelligence is not a, is not a narrow thing. You know, once you have a bigger brain or you have some problem solving skills, that can be utilized, can be co-opted for a very a broad range of abilities and behaviors that may have nothing to do with what the trait was specifically evolved for. So th- that's important to keep in mind and I think this is actually a really good example of that. Steve, is there anything unusual about the organization of the rooks or crows brains? That they're able to pack so much punch in such a little space? Well, that, that's a good question. There, there are definitely researchers working on that. I don't know what the answer to that question is or how close we are to an answer. That's probably something we can explore in the future. One more quick news item before we go on to a couple of emails. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, in collaboration with the New York City Skeptics, is going to be holding a conference. The conference is called the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, so you know what you know how to pronounce that acronym? Nexus. And Nexus, yeah. So N E C S S. So this is the Nexus oh. conference. You won't like believe it. how long it took us to come up with that, seriously. Oh my God. <laughs> I believe it. At least twelve parsecs. Right. This will be on oh. September twelfth, two thousand and nine, <laughs> this year. This will be our second annual Perry DeAngelis Live SGU show. But in addition, it's going to be an all-day conference. And here's the lineup of speakers we have so far. You ready? Do it. Ready. James Randi. Carl Zimmer. Cool. John Rennie. Johnny. Oh, Oh, John Rennie's awesome. Paul Offit. Nice. Massimo Pilucci. Well, he's a cool dude. He's a cool guy. (laughs) George Hlab. Hey, George. I love that man. <laughs> Kaja Perina, Howard Schneider, John Snyder. Don't it's Schneider and Snyder. Don't get those confused. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> Schneider. <laughs> Michael Dedora and Jamie Ian Swiss, who's going to MC it for us this year. That's a nice, what a nice lineup. lineup. That's a quite a That's lineup, isn't it? Sweet. And us. So 
the venue is like 90% solid, but we're not going to tell you what it is yet until it's 100% solid. We'll probably have that within the next week or two, but this is sort of a save-the-date announcement, September 12, 2009 to Saturday, all-day conference. Of course, there'll be a live SGU show, but around that, there'll be all these great speakers and panels. It's going to be awesome. Uh, this is because of the venue and, and travel expenses and whatnot. Um, we are going to be charging for this event. We're setting up uh, tickets through Ticketmaster, actually. Of course, you could also just pay at the door. And uh, we'll have that information, too, again in the next week or two. So this is, again, save the date, September 12, 2009, full details in the next week or two. And we're hoping to make this like our annual Northeastern Skeptical Conference. You know, that's, this is especially like, for example, for people who live in the Northeast who can't fly out all the way to Vegas. Well, you know, you're going to get to see Randy and us and a lot of other people shortly after that at, at the Nexus Conference. Good so, Steve, you need me to have. go to this or what? Jay, you're invited, man. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you have a seat in the 12th row on the side. <laughs> um, now, this is something we've been discussing even long before a podcast. Yeah. Um, as part of the NESS and in the 90s and early 2000s, we always wanted to have a Northeastern conference. Absolutely. If it's successful, yeah. then this is absolutely the kind of thing that we want to do every year. Of course it's going to be successful, Steve. You have to envision it as though it's already happened. <laughs> That's, That's right. That's what I learned from Oprah. Is that the secret? <laughs> and the That's secret. The secret. Shh, the secret. <laughs> it will be successful. Is that the secret? And thanks th- thanks to all the guys at the uh, New York City Skeptics. They're really doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this one. They're so yeah. fantastic. Mike Feldman. Oh, yeah. He's been awesome guys. Butt. It's fantastic, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go on to a couple of your questions and emails. The first one comes from Trinity Melvin from Valparaiso, Florida. I love that name, by the way. Trinity? Yeah, well, Trinity Melvin. No, I like Valparaiso. Like a cool name. <laughs> Melvin, Melvin! Mel- oh, Melvin, Melvin! <laughs> she writes, As a former creationist, one of the most persuasive arguments that I remember is that of polonium halos in granite. Dr. Robert Gentry claims to have discovered proof of an instantaneous creation of Earth in the form of the halos of radioactive polonium in undisturbed granite. He challenges mainstream science to reproduce such an artifact in a laboratory or explain how such a thing could happen naturally. What do you think about this guy, and are his claims all that weighty? Thanks for the great show, guys. I regularly listen to, to about 10 podcasts, and I've got to say that yours is the one I most eagerly wait for every week. Oh, Awesome. Well, thank you, Trinity. This is a good question. I actually, prior to your question, I'd never heard of polonium halos. Yeah, I didn't and either. I, I thought I heard every creationist mm. bullcrap argument out there, but this was a new one. So, But Bob and I looked into it, and uh, why don't you give us the skinny, Bob? Yeah, this one's been around apparently for, for quite a while. First off, Robert V. Gentry... Uh, I found him on the Who's Who in Creation Evolution website. They list him first and foremost. He's listed as a creationist. Uh, then then uh, <laughs> below that, physicist and chemist. He has an honorary doctorate from the Fundamentalist Columbia Union College, and he has a master's in physics from the University of Florida. So Imagine having all that and putting creationist first. Yeah, first. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Absolutely. Jackass. <laughs> now, the halos that Trinity is talking about, uh, these halos in rock, they're called pleochroic halos. They, they can appear in rock like granite. What they are essentially are spherical bands of discoloration, or perhaps uh, a, a better term would be shells of radiation damage, because that's essentially what these discolorations are. They're bits of radiation damage, and they're caused by alpha particles. Alpha particles are, it's a type of radiation. 
just basically two protons and neutrons that that are released by by unstable atoms. These alpha particles are very ionizing radiation, and they um, what happens though during alpha decay when these these protons leave the atom, you're basically changing the atom into a different element, right? Because the protons that are in the nucleus, that's what determines the chemical properties. So that when you have some protons leaving the nucleus, bam, you got you, you must have a different element. Now, if it was neutrons, it would be a different story because the neutrons just determines the isotope. It's, it's still, you know, it's still that element, but just a different isotope of, of that element. Now, what happens is when, you've, when you have... You have this radiation leaving the element, in a, say in, a, in granite, it leaves a, a ring. It, it creates these distinctive nested concentric rings of, of damage to the rock. So if you would, say you had a bit of uranium-238 in rock, it would, it would slowly decay and create a, a, a ring from the alpha particles being, the high energy alpha particles being released. And then you go through to, to the, all, the daughter, all the daughter elements, thorium, radium, radon, polonium and and lead so each so each different element would then create a different ring that would maybe be further apart further away from the center so can you, you see what i'm saying you've, you've got this alpha decay creating these concentric rings of discoloration depending on what element the the parent particle has decayed into okay right so gentry the anomaly that gentry is primarily talking about he found polonium rings he found these polonium ring halos, but they didn't have any parent rings inside of it that would have, like, say, uranium or thorium. So you've got these naked polonium rings. What do you think that would mean? If you have this ring all by itself, then that means that polonium was, was somehow there when the rock was formed. So that's what he believes, that polonium was there, the rock cooled, and then it, then it made this ring when, when the polonium decayed. The problem is, is that the half-life of polonium is very, very short on the matter of either minutes, seconds, or microseconds, depending on, on the isotope. It's, or, it or, does not or exist. days. I heard or seconds, days. The higher seconds end, to days is the range, yeah. Right. The higher end was, was days. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, most geologists will tell you that granite takes takes many, many years to, to cool. So so then how could this possibly happen? How could granite cool on one hand in many, many years or even millions of years, and but the half-life of polonium is very, very brief. So how could you, you know, how do you justify those two things? I actually found a great and excellent um, analogy on a, on a very credulous site, and, but I'm going to use their analogy anyway because it was very good. It was like coming across Alka-Seltzer bubbles in water. Say you, have, you find frozen water and there's Alka-Seltzer bubbles. Clearly, for whatever test you perform, these are Alka-Seltzer bubbles. You know the bubbles formed in a liquid when you drop you know Alka-Seltzer tablets in water. Well, what your only conclusion would have to be that the water froze very very fast in order for these Alka-Seltzer bubbles to to remain right because they're to be captured. They're, they, yeah. they don't last very long. These bubbles are very fleeting. The water would have to be actually flash frozen very quickly in order for these things to remain. So in a similar way, the, the radiation from the polonium must have created must have created these these halos right after the granite froze so that so one the conclusion that they would like everyone to come to is that the earth the granite in the earth did not uh, form in thousands or millions of years but f- within maybe 30 minutes or less or instantaneously clearly requiring some sort of supernatural agency to come in and do this so that's what cuz he well, he's trying to promote his um, you know his young earth creationism and that just totally plays into that
they keep saying, oh, you know, how could, you know, science has no explanation for this. And it's true that there's no clear-cut experiment that a, that a geologist can perform to show you exactly how this is done. But I think it's pretty widely accepted that what's the – in a lot of the websites I came across, a lot of geologists believe that what happens is, is that the uranium decays into radon gas – which is a precursor to the polonium. So you've got the you've got the various uh, uranium and thorium and other elements decomposing, and then you've one of these elements that it decomposes into is radon gas, which then which then can migrate uh, away from the original site the, where the uranium w- was originally, and then that then that would decay into polonium, which would then make these these naked polonium halos without any apparent connection to to the uh, uranium. Right. That this belief is supported by the fact that a lot of or all of Gentry's uh, polonium halos are found near cracks in rock that contain uranium halos. So there's always a connection between these like naked polonium halos and the uranium halos. So there's clearly a connection between them. And I, as far as I could tell, they have not found any polonium halos in rock without any uranium, either either deposits or or halos nearby. So to me, that's. It seems much more likely that that is the reason why you've got these halos than, than the Earth was created instantaneously. And, and, but the problems don't end there. There's lots of problems with just, uh, with just this guy's geology. He's, this guy's not a geologist. Um, he's got a master's in physics, but he's, but he's not a geologist. And he, and he makes basic errors that you know, regular geologists would not make, according to at least a lot of the authors on Talk Origins' website. One quote from that website said that in Gentry's model, any rock looking vaguely like a granite and carrying the label Precambrian is considered to be primordial rock. Yeah, so basically he's saying that this these polonium halos occur in the in the original crust of the Earth, the oldest crust of the Earth. But he's counting anything Precambrian, which is whatever, say up to 600 million years ago, yeah. as primordial Earth crust, when in fact there's like, three and a half billion years before the in the Precambrian. He's counting all of it as primordial. He even, however, had some rock granite that he was labeling as as primordial that was above and therefore younger than fossil bearing strata and clearly like recent strata. You know, more recent even than the than the Cambridge so he totally blew the geology. He did. And then he's, he was anomaly hunting, right? He thought he had an anomaly, but there's completely plausible explanations. And also, his physics requires that in order for his, his dating, uh, his timeline to work out, the Earth is whatever, young Earth creation is 10,000 years old. Again, this is, this is something that the young Earth creations have to do, is argue that the decay rate of different elements, different radioactive elements, is is not constant, right? Because if we use if we use decay rates to age rocks, even if we use different decay rates, we come up so independently to, to date rocks. We come up with the, the roughly the same date. You know, rocks will date to be four billion years old, even if you use different methods to figure out how old they are. So that that's pretty good right. confirmation that it's actually four billion years old. But Gentry says no. That's because decay rates are not the same today as they were 10,000 years ago, that they've essentially been slowing down. Things decayed much, much faster back then. But his argument would require that different elements vary to different degrees, but all conspire to come up to this with the right. same age, 
even when you use different dating methods, except for polonium, polonium right. right? Which is the one element that does whose, whose <laughs> decay rate is the same as it was before. So that's a massive amount of special pleading. It's just miracle after after you know supernatural intervention after yeah. special pleading, all to jury rig it to make it all work out so that you, so that it's consistent with the young Earth. And yeah. of course, that's all BS. One writer referred to those, Steve, as uh, he called them singularities, where where he had uh, you know divine intervention to help you know to help save his theory. And you know I could you know I could see maybe one or two divine interventions, but when you go to three divine interventions, yeah, that's, that's just one too many. One too many. That's how many you need to be a saint. So yeah. or maybe supplying for something. You saying you went a miracle too far, Bob? Yeah, at least one. Yeah. But that's like that's that's like a, like that famous New Yorker cartoon with the complex mathematical equation and then at the end it says and then a miracle happened <laughs> and then you get your answer you, you can't do that in science you can't do it once let alone three times sorry well let's go on with our interview joining us once again is Phil Plate the bad astronomer Phil welcome back to the SGU Hey, SGUers, SGUers, SGUers. Do you have a collective noun for you guys? We're the rogues. Yeah, we're the rogues. We're the rogues. I always got the impression the that Steve was in charge and the rest of you guys were rogues. Actually, you're, yeah, you're really not a rogue, Steve. He is. He's like Alex you, and we're his You're duties. like a pimp of the rogues. Well, whatever. I'm like Gladys Knight and you're the, you're the pips. No, I said that, that, you're, that you're a pimp <laughs> and we're the rogues. <laughs> so, Phil, you are here to talk about a few things, but primarily the latest Star Trek movie. So first of all, tell me how awesome you thought that movie was. On a scale of 1 to 10, it was Warp Factor 9. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How dorky can I be? I mean, you guys you guys aren't big Star Trek fans, are you? I never hear you talking about it. Yeah, no kill, I, I know. I hear you guys dorking Hello. out over Trek every episode. You, you talked about Trek. I, one of you slipped in a Trek line with Rusty Schweiker, and I'm not sure if he got it or not, but it sounded like he might have. Bob did, and it sounded like he got it. You know, he at least played off it well enough. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this movie quite a bit. Uh, I was walking into it thinking, please, please, yeah, please. Well, you know, J.J. Abrams, you know, I liked Cloverfield and uh, Lost. I watched one episode and said, yeah, this is going nowhere. Um, <laughs> so I, was, I wasn't sure what to expect. And, you know, with the, I knew it was going to reboot and I knew it was going to be different. Um, but in fact, you know, uh, I think going in with lower expectations sometimes works oh. because I really liked oh, it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I watched it a second time. And liked it just as much. So, yeah, I, I, I dug this movie. And just before we go on, there's going to be no way for us to talk about this without huge spoilers coming in. So if you haven't seen the Star Trek movie yet and you don't want any spoilers, go see it now and then come back and listen to the rest of the show. Yeah, we'll wait. Yeah, all five of you that haven't seen it yet to listen to this show. <laughs> okay, they're back. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> now, Phil, you wrote a blog entry doing as you do, examining the science in the science fiction movie of Star Trek. So some of it good, some of it, you know, eh, some of it speculative, some of it not so good. Uh, what was the biggest howler you thought of uh, in this movie? Well, you've got to be a little bit careful here because, uh, you know, that, that, that blog post has almost 400 comments on it. Yeah. Now. Clearly people, uh, you know, they take, they take Trek to heart, whether they love it or hate it. Um, I'm not going to talk about 
you know, time travel or warp drive or phasers or transporters, you know, when you, when you watch a movie that's Star Trek, you're buying into the background of it. Just like in Star Wars, you can argue endlessly over, you know, whether a parsec is unit of distance or time or whether they went around black holes or whatever. Um, you know, that you, you just got to buy into it. And, and with Star Trek, I'm not going to argue that, you know, I'll, I'll only start talking about either introduced science something that's new to the show, mm-hmm. or when they do things inconsistently, like they regenerate Dr. Pulaski to when she was younger using the transporter and a bit of DNA, and then the next episode they totally forget about that. <laughs> it's like, you know, we can all be young forever. Hey! But, you know. Right. Uh, so in this movie, I'm not going to, you know, I don't worry about warp drive. Warp drive is just as fast as the writers need it to be to get the Enterprise where it needs to be for maximum dramatic effect. That's how fast exactly. it is, right? <laughs> that's actually right. true. That's good. And and you can argue time travel uh, as much as you want. It's kind of fun, you know. I'll, I'll talk. You know, you know, I'll always be happy to talk to people about paradoxes or you know whether you're creating an alternate universe or something like that. But you know, I'm I'm not too worried about that for a discussion of the science in the movie. I'm more concerned about you know the depiction of other things that happen, like when the guys are jumping uh, out of a shuttle and and free falling down to uh, down to Vulcan. What's going to happen? So that was kind of cool. But but the, to answer your question, which always seems to take me a long time when I'm on this show, um, obviously, it's the red matter. I mean, that was really just a, you know, really? Red matter? That's yeah. what I'm doing with this? You know, it's a giant center of a target symbol. Um, it, it was, right. That was just kind of silly. That was that was too big of a MacGuffin to ignore. I kind of wish they had done it some other way. Or at least give a better name. Yeah, the name was pretty silly. Red matter, um, but then again, you know, you know, they would have just called mm-hmm. it the, uh, yeah. the the decatron field or something like that. The idea here is that a, a Romulan nutsoid guy convinces um, Spock and the Vulcan Science Academy to use this this material called red matter to create a, a, basically an artificial black hole. It's a real black hole, but they artificially create it to stop a supernova from wiping out the galaxy. Ooh. And and there's just hordes of, of of nasty, ridiculous plot holes here. You know, one supernova can't wipe out the galaxy. And some people said, oh, there were some comic books that came out that right. described that. It created a chain of supernovae. And I think, yeah, but you know what? These guys, 400 years from now, they got warp drive and huge ships. Evacuate your planet. You know, maybe you can right. save somebody. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And Or there was some speculation that it was like a subspace hypernova or something. Oh, well, then but, there you go. <laughs> There you go. But even then, you, th- you should publish if, if that, these- Steve. That's that's good. Astrophysical Journal would love that. If there was a phenomenon that could wipe out the galaxy, you would think it would happen every now and then. Um, well, yeah, you know, it's just it's been a few thousand years since the last one happened, right? So, <laughs> and it was just kind of silly, you know. If you're creating a black hole, it's a it's a little tiny black hole. When you when you collapse a planet down to become a black hole, it's only about a centimeter across. That's how much you have to compress a planet before, by definition, it becomes a black hole. And so it it would be very difficult to fit a large Romulan mining ship into a black hole that is a centimeter across, not to mention the tidal effects, which would which would rip the uh, the, the ship apart, and and a billion other problems. So, you know, it, 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 at some level, you have to say, yep, Star Trek, and not worry about it. Real quick, stupid question, maybe. Um, so the more of that red matter they use, the bigger the black hole? It's unclear. You know, it, they only need to use a little drop to collapse a planet. And in the end of the movie, Spock rams a ball of this stuff a meter across into the Romulan ship. And yeah. it doesn't seem to create a black hole any bigger. 
So I think mm-hmm. uh, this is one of those things where it just becomes, this is something we need to do so that we have an excuse to reboot the franchise and, and, and just say, all right, got it, yeah. let's move on from there. Yeah, I agree. But I think it gets a little lazy. I mean, I understand that they, what they, why they needed to do what they did for plot reasons, but, you know, it's a science fiction movie. Think about the science a little bit and, and come up with an interesting sort of way of doing it. It's still going to be speculative. It's still going to involve future science that that isn't real that we don't have yet that was just a little bit too close to just saying okay it's magic there's this magic stuff which does whatever we want to do yeah really i mean if they had if they had talked to well they did talk to an astronomer carolyn porco who's the uh, imaging lead of the cassini saturn probe uh they consulted her uh for one scene and it's pretty obvious in the movie what scene that would be when when you see Titan and Saturn, and they used mm-hmm. her idea. And they actually did a relatively decent job of it, although they kind of screwed up the graphics a little bit. Um, they show Titan orbiting Saturn in an orbit it isn't orbiting it. And, and you might say, well, that's silly. But in fact, uh, Titan orbits in the same plane as Saturn's rings. So if you're on, if you're on Saturn, if you're, excuse me, if you're on Titan and you look at Saturn, the rings would be a terribly thin line. You'd barely be able to see right. them. And right. in the movie, they depict it as being way above the plane of the rings. But, you know, you got to do that. Yeah. If you're at Saturn, you've got to show yeah. the rings, right? So, eh, all right. The rings don't have a magnetic field, so Chekhov was wrong about that. Eh, all right, all right. It was still really <laughs> Phil, cool you know what I love? And it was inspired <laughs> by a scientist who said you should do it this Phil, way. So that, that it's so cool rocked. that you know, but you know enough that you watch the movie and you're like, oh, the perspective is way off here. Like I would never know that fact that you just said, never. <laughs> well, it also makes me a little bit of an anal dickhead. You know, you got to be. You, uh, if I do say so myself, you got to be careful not to over analyze this stuff and and that's that's sort of where I'm coming in. You you could if you're creating a movie and you're spending a bazillion dollars on it and everything, sometimes it pays off to talk to a scientist, especially someone like Carolyn who knows Saturn like the back of her hand and and can come up with something really cool. And typically, you know, I've I've been approached by directors and producers in the past of TV shows or whatever to say, you know, we're we're trying to do this, we want to make it realistic and then what happens is that the real science turns out to be totally awesome and a lot better huh. than anything they would have come up with. That happened in Deep right. Impact. Um, I, I, I won't give a specific example, but uh, there was one TV show where I said, you know, you guys could do it this way, and then you'll wind up having, you know, you'll be, you'll have your spaceship screaming into a gas giant atmosphere, and and it'll be t- really cool, and and they really love that idea, and I don't I actually don't know if they ever used it, but but that happens, you know. So had they come to someone who knows about supernovae or or gamma ray bursts, you know, maybe we could have come up with something better. Um, than you know red matter and a supernova, but who knows maybe not and and even if even if we had they they may have opted not to use it you know you're just they 're just going to do what they 're going to do. The best we can hope for is to come up with something cool and and basically hope they can use it yeah, so basically everyone fill plate dickhead for hire, just give a call that 's true for a million bucks, I will vet your script so there. <laughs> and point out all the flaws oh great. <laughs> One thing that I think is coming up here is that there's a difference between taking poetic license. Like, okay, you got to put Titan above the plane of Saturn's ring so that we could see the beautiful rings. That's purely an aesthetic choice. Okay, I could buy that. Versus just laziness and in not exploring the real science. Because as you say, when you do that, it turns out to be a lot more interesting 
than the crap that people come up with on their own who don't really understand the science. I, I think this is a point worth emphasizing because you know if I'm a if I'm a director like J.J. Abrams or or someone like that, I, my first thought is not going to be to care about the real science. You know, I'm making a movie, and if the science is depicted, you know, incorrectly or not, I don't care. The point is, if you talk to a real scientist, uh, they are likely to show you something that would never have occurred to you. As imaginative as these writers are, as the directors are, as the special effects team is, a real scientist will have a different perspective and may be able to come up with something that visually would be tremendously appealing. Uh, whether it's accurate or not, uh, might be just simply a perspective that that the the team of writers doesn't have. You know. Also, one issue that that bothers us quite often here, like as, as a group, Skeptics Guide. You know, we don't like science being misrepresented in the news and everything. And I, you know, I have to say that does go for even science fiction movies. So, you know, the, the the idea here is show things that are as as accurate as it can be with our knowledge of science today, just so you don't spread misinformation. I'm just more concerned that they'll just get a, a sort of a, pardon the pun, a warped sense of what science is and what it can do. Uh, right. On the other hand, if you go to any astronaut today or any astronomer around my age and say, what inspired you to do this? They will say, Star Trek, Lost in Space, Space 1999, Star Wars for the younger astronomy astronomers these days. And so as terrible as these shows are for the depiction of science, they do inspire people. So it's possible they're, they're inspiring despite the science in them. And it makes me wonder what would happen if the science were done a little bit more accurately and if scientists were portrayed a little more accurately, which is something that is being done a lot better today than it was certainly in the 1950s. So, uh, you know, the next generation of scientists is being inspired by the movies that are coming out today. And I'd like to see that being done even better than it's being done now. Yeah, to some degree, fiction is the mythology of our modern culture. You know, the movies and serve the same role in our culture that, you know, Shakespeare did hundreds of years ago and plays did thousands of years ago. So it, it, it does reflect back on the culture, but also influences the culture as well. That's why I, I get more uh, concerned about the portrayal of science and scientists, as you say, than picky details about about uh, scientific facts. Yeah. You know what you, I mean? You know what I get reminded of, Steve? The Brent Spiner's character in Independence Day. Yeah. If you remember that movie? He was kind of this, you know, mad grizzled hair, day. recluse, mad, mad scientist. And, and the movies definitely, definitely help Foster portray that, that stereotype yeah. and perpetuate yeah. it. They reflect and they direct the, our, our perception of, of science and scientists. Yeah. Phil, was there any other parts of the movie that you wanted to talk about that stuck out you, that you didn't like? Or that you did like? Like, uh, I know you mentioned the, the one scene where they, it had uh, silence in space was a refreshing yeah. change. Not only was the silence in space cool, and, and you know, sure, they, they have, you know, when the ship's going to warp, they whoosh away and all that. But the, the two times that they showed silence in space that I recall, effective. both times were incredibly dramatic where the Kelvin is getting just pummeled by, by the Romulan ship, and there's explosions and noise and everything, and then a crewman gets, gets blown out into space, and suddenly there's silence, which made it really dramatic. How rare is that? It, 2001, 2001 did it, and so did Firefly, and a handful of other shows have done it as well. Yeah, not many. But I don't think it's been done to such dramatic effect. 
uh, to have all the noise and then that. And the second time was when uh, Kirk and McCoy and, and basically Officer Redshirt uh, are on the shuttle and do their their little their little spaceship dive. Well, Sulu, down to not McCoy. Sulu. Uh, excuse me, Sulu. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of noise and everything, and then they they're they're ejected out, and then once again, it's silent. Uh, it's it's jarring. It it shakes you out of the the background of the movie itself and makes you pay more attention to what you're seeing. Yes, that's it. That's always been interesting to me because I thought that Kubrick used the silence of space to incredibly dramatic effect in 2001, and I'm surprised that didn't set the standard for the genre after that. I don't, I'm still not sure why that is. It's, it's simply because you're not used to it. And there's that legend, and I still don't know if it's true or not, that Roddenberry was showing rushes of the show to, to, to test groups, basically, with no sound in space, Ooh. and everybody said they hated it. Oh, wow. And so in Star Trek, they added the sound in because people didn't like it. Well, Phil, before, before we let you go, I wanted to touch on a couple of other topics. You've written recently about the most recent uh, million-dollar psychic challenge. Uh, can you give us a quick synopsis of that? It was kind of interesting. Right. This last challenge was actually done in the U.K., and professors Chris French and Richard Wiseman actually are the ones who ran it. Patricia Putt applied to win James Randi's million-dollar paranormal challenge, where if you can prove that you can, you have some sort of you know, psychic power, paranormal, or supernatural claim, uh, we'll give you a million bucks. It's, it's not quite that simple, but it's not too much harder than that. This was a preliminary test. The person has to basically negotiate protocols. If you have a claim that you can, for example, predict uh, the throw of a pair of dice every time, then you would set up uh, something where somebody throws dice randomly and then you have to agree on how many times you can uh, predict it such that you know, it, it can't be one sixth of the time, for example, uh, because that's that's or one or whatever the statistics are. Uh, if you know, if you can, if you can guess a random number between one and ten, one tenth of the time, you're not psychic. You, you're Gaussian, is what you are. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, we have to negotiate those protocols. Both sides or both parties have to agree to these protocols. And so that was negotiated in, in advance. Patricia Putt went through this with Allison Smith, who's a staff member of the JREF. And the protocols were, were set up. And basically, Patricia P uh, Putt's claim, in a nutshell, is that uh, by listening to someone talking, she can write down all sorts of things about their, their personality. So she read 10 women... And she wrote down their personality uh, readings, or their profiles. And then after the fact, these 10 women each got to look at these 10 profiles and pick the one that they felt represented them the best. Uh, statistically, you, you should expect something like 1 out of 10, because that's just random chance that one person is going to randomly pick theirs. The limit for this in the protocols, uh, what Patricia Putt pr predicted she would be able to do, was 5 out of 10 which was hugely over uh, statistical randomness. And we agreed that if she could pick five, then something was going on, and then she could move on to the final challenge where it would be uh, done again, basically. Uh, what happened was, after the fact, the women were allowed to choose their readings, and she scored zero. That would be zero for those of you reading at home. Nothing. Zilch. None of the women picked the profile that uh, Patricia wrote for them specifically. Uh, what was interesting is what happened after this. 
immediately afterwards, and Richard Wiseman wrote about this on his blog. If you look up uh, his website, Richard Wiseman, on the, on the web, he wrote this up. And evidently, she was quite shaken by this. Ms. Putt was shocked and didn't, uh, you know, she didn't say, wow, I must not be psychic or anything like that. But she felt that the test was fair and was actually rather magnanimous about the whole thing. Um, but then later, she changed her mind a little bit. And we see this a lot. We see this a lot that after the fact, there's, there's rationalizations. And she said that um, the women that she was trying to read were bound up too much and could not perform. She couldn't read them that way. That's, that's not true. The women weren't bound up. They were, they were hidden from, from her view in such a way that she couldn't read their faces if they subconsciously you know, smiled or grimaced or anything like that. So that, that would allow her to read them using basically cold reading techniques. Um, so that wasn't true. And then she let, she left a comment on, on Richard Wiseman's blog saying that in fact, she did not get zero out of 10. She got 10 out of 10 it, it, correct. And because, and, and this just slays me, each woman did in fact pick a profile that matched her. It's like, yeah. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Part of the protocol was that each woman had to pick the one that matched her best. Of course they had to pick one. It was, you know, there's a 100% chance that each woman's going to pick one. It doesn't matter what she said. And therefore, her, her saying that she got 10 out of 10 is simply a rationalization after the fact. Now, uh, there have been, I've seen some complaints. I wrote about this on my blog. Uh, Richard Wiseman has. Christopher uh, French wrote about it in The Guardian, uh, in the newspaper in the U.K., and there have been some interesting comments, one person saying, well, this isn't a scientific test. And I find that kind of humorous because it's not a rigorously scientific test. Um, but the, 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 the variables are, in some sense, controlled. In a scientific test, you know, yes, we should do 10,000 of these readings, and that would give us good statistics. But in a scientific test, you have to control some of the variables, and that's been done. Uh, Ms. Putt couldn't look at the faces of these women, couldn't, um, uh, they were all women, so she couldn't write down she versus he is a person that does this, so that right away right. you can eliminate uh, uh, some, of the, some of the readings. All of these variables were, were, were controlled in such a way that if she were psychic, she should have been able to do better uh, than, than a, random, a random distribution would say. She didn't. And so we cannot say psychic powers don't exist. We cannot say psychic powers do exist. We can't even say Patricia Putt is not a psychic. All we can say is that she agreed to the protocols. The protocols were statistically derived and would have been statistically significant, and she did not do better than random chance. Therefore, in this particular case, there was no proof of psychic abilities. Once again. <laughs> yes, once again. <laughs> what she's doing is the equivalent, logically, of the uh, the one-ahead trick that ESP researchers have done for a while. The results come back negative, but then they look to see if they can make any match between the predictions and the data. Right, so oh well, if you if you look at the card ahead of what they were guessing, that was a little bit better than chance, or the one behind, or if you discard the first fifty and then start counting from there, right? right. So there's all sorts of way to increase the probability. Although she found a way to increase it to a hundred percent, so that's very creative <laughs> of her to do that because they they as you say they 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 each picked something, right? So uh, she couldn't she couldn't lose. I like to tell people sometimes when I give talks. That 90%, 90% or more of all violent crimes occur within a week of the new or full moon. 
<laughs> and, and people don't get it, right? You guys, you guys get it, right? Because within a week of the new or full moon, you add that up. That's four weeks, and the, and the moon goes. You know, it's twenty eight days. The moon goes around the Earth in oh, twenty nine days. So twenty eight out of twenty nine, statistically, a violent crime should happen uh, within that time period. It sounds like you're saying within a week of each other, all mm-hmm. violent crimes happen. You know, so yeah. so that's a way of changing the goalposts and and relying on people's. Uh, poorly understood statistics to to pull one over. Now, I'm not saying she's trying to pull one over. Uh, according, you know, I haven't met the woman. I've only read what she's written. But according to Richard and Christopher, she seems like an honest person. It's so classic, though, that the woman goes home, thinks about it for a little while, and then very, very decisively deludes herself into thinking, nope, they were wrong and I was right. Yeah, in in Richard Wiseman's blog comments, she said that she walked into this thinking it was going to be one-sided bias towards the JREF. That's really unfair because she agreed to the protocols and said that everything was fine. Now, it's you know, after the fact, you can say, oh, you know, who hasn't signed a contract and looked back on it and, and thought, what was I thinking? But this is such a gross... Uh, misreading that it, it seems it, it seems to defy belief if you pardon the expression that somebody would agree to a contract like that thinking they would walk into it that that it was so biased for the JREF and against the claimant so I'm not I'm not buying that that argument it, it just seems that you know they always seem to complain about these protocols after they lose and never before they take the test hey Phil let's talk about Tam babe what do we got what don't we have that's a shorter list Oh man, Tam is is steaming along. Tam, I should say, Tam Vegas, Tam Seven is steaming along very well. Uh, this is uh, July 9th through twelfth, two thousand nine, at the South Point Hotel, Casino, and Spa in sunny and and believe me, it's 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 going to be sunny. It like surface of the sun, sunny in in Vegas. <laughs> we've got our our speakers are lined up. We're, we've got so many speakers. We're trying to figure out you know how to schedule all of this incredible talent. You know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm I'm. I'm shoveling something here but i'm i'm so excited about this our <laughs> keynote speaker is bill prady from the big bang theory he's the executive producer i've been i've been talking with him and i'm really excited about he's a the guy's a true geek and so he's going to have a lot of fun up there showing clips and discussing it jennifer wellett from a cocktail party physics blog who's also part of the science and entertainment exchange talking to big time and i mean big time hollywood producers and directors to get better science in the movies apropos of our discussion earlier um we've got you know the usual the usual lineup of penn and teller and Shermer, adam savage randy me um but we also have you guys right absolutely doing sg live you guys will be doing some interviews while we're there and of course steve is also on thursday running the science-based medicine meeting which I hear is actually doing pretty well. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Again, it's going to, we're going to offer continuing medical education credits for physicians, but the conference is going to be geared towards a general audience. So if, uh, you, you know, if you want to hear, I think there's seven of us, different physicians talking about science-based medicine and skills you could use to navigate all, you know, the health claims that are out there on the Internet and dealing with your physician, etc., it'll be a fun conference for anybody. You have great speakers lined up for that, and I'm I'm actually hoping to be able to to split my time between listening to someone like Dave Gorski talking, uh, as well as attending the workshops. We we have some extracurricular workshops that we're we're running on Thursday, July 9th, 
Uh, we're also do it. We have a vaccination clinic in Las Vegas. You can donate money so that kids in Las Vegas can get vaccinated. Las Vegas has some of the lowest vaccination rates yeah. in the country. And we know what happens, uh, when, when we lose our herd immunity, we're hearing about that in the news. Uh, when, when people like Jenny McCarthy get traction, Ugh. babies start dying. It's, it's really just that simple. When the claims of the anti-vaxxers get, uh, spread in, in the populace, we start getting kids with pertussis and measles and, and it's putting them at risk of, of horrible diseases as well as, as, as possibly dying. We can't have that happen. Uh, so we're running a vaccination clinic. We just got a ton of stuff going on and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, Phil, thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. It's even better when Rebecca's not around. (laughs) And we all can't wait to see you in Vegas, man. Oh, I'm totally, totally fired up for this. Yeah, we are too. It's going to be awesome. Take care. See you, Bill. Thanks. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And you all can play along at home. Is everyone ready for this week's items? Absolutely. All right. Good. And I don't want to take you by surprise. I always check. Here we go. Item number one. Epidemiologists warn of a surge in the incidence of leprosy in India and other parts of Asia, which they fear may return to epidemic proportions. Item number two, researchers find that in the last 18 years, the percentage of Americans following basic healthy lifestyle recommendations has declined. And item number three, a cancer patient was detained at customs for several hours because the chemotherapy he was on caused him to lose his fingerprints. What? You heard me. (laughs) Evan, go first. Okay, so a surge in leprosy in India and other parts of Asia. Okay. The next one was, last 18 years, percentage of Americans following basic healthy lifestyle recommendations has declined. I think that's tragically probably true. And then the last one was the cancer patient. Uh, Detained at customs for several hours because the chemotherapy he was on caused him to lose his fingerprints. Oh, boy. Is that possible? How is how would chemotherapy can cause you to lose your fingerprints, cause you to lose your hair? Well, but I think that one's I think that's uh, actually going to be wind up being true, and therefore I'll say that the um, healthy lifestyle recommendations declining over the last eighteen years. I'll say that one is fiction. Okay, Jay. Epidemiologists warn of a surge of leprosy in India. And they fear it might return to epidemic proportions. I mean, I could definitely buy that for lots of different reasons. Researchers find eighteen in the last eighteen years, percentage of Americans following basic healthy lifestyle recommendations has declined. I don't know about that. I mean, I could see in the United States weight gain seems to be on the rise. Ha ha. But um, I don't know. Not sure about that one. And the guy losing his fingerprints. Because of being on chemotherapy, what would the chemo do to his skin? You know, I'm, I'm dying to ask a question, Steve. Like, is it is all of his skin affected or just his fingerprints? No comment. Wow. Okay. Well, then I will go with. I'll take. Uh, I'll say that the the second one, the 18, 18 years percentage of Americans following basic healthy lifestyle recommendations has declined. I'll say that's the fake. Okay, Bob. The leprosy one. Uh Epidemic proportions, Ew, I don't know about that one. Uh, it just feels like one of those things that you just never really uh, 
think of coming back. Kind of like uh, whooping cough, I guess. <laughs> Not sure about that one. Um, the 18 years of the uh, basic lifestyle recommendations declining. I don't know. That, yeah, that doesn't sound that right to me. Um, I think that people following them probably is as low as it's been in a while. Maybe maybe even a little bit better considering I think aren't less people smoking, at least in, in the States. And then the, the cancer one with the fingerprints, that certainly is bizarre. That's so bizarre, I'm going to say that I'm not going to doubt that for now. Um, so let me see, between one and two. Just pick one, Bob. No, no. Um, I'll, go, I'll, go with the, I'll go with the group then, with, with Jay and Evan, number two, the lifestyle. Yeah. Okay, Rebecca? Okay, I too am torn between the leprosy and the uh, healthy lifestyle options. And my initial reaction was to go with the healthy lifestyle thing because that seems like the sort of thing that you might make up, you know, because it sounds true. So obviously it's false. But maybe that's what you want us to think, Steve. (laughs) Uh, I haven't read anything about either of these. However, I did read something about leprosy recently. I believe it was something about the first person who had leprosy I don't know there's something in the news about that I don't know but um, I'm wondering if maybe you're trying to rely upon us remembering the leprosy <laughs> was in the news and assuming that one's true so I'm going to go against the group and say that the leprosy item is in fact false okay so we'll start with number three all of you think a cancer patient was detained at customs for several hours because the chemotherapy he was on caused him to lose his fingerprints. And that one is science. It's interesting. That's, yeah, that was the interesting that one. That remarkable. Nobody went for that one. This is a, um, a, re- this is a patient who was taking an anti- anti-cancer drug, a fairly common one called capacitabine. I think that's how you pronounce it. One of the adverse effects is called hand-foot syndrome, which is a chronic inflammation of the palms or soles of the feet. And if this is, a, if this is allowed to occur for a while, you could have sort of multiple episodes of inflammation of the palms and the skin uh, coming off and blistering, etc., that could actually remove the f- the fingerprints or eradicate the fingerprints from the palm over time. So, Steve, this is really localized to the hands, then the hands and feet, wow. hence hand foot syndrome. Oh, okay, oh, yeah. yeah. So, this actually happened to uh, a patient who was getting this this uh, chemotherapy, and he was held up at immigration because he was coming in from another country, and they they routinely now. Uh, will fingerprint people just to check them against a list of like known terrorists. They, he didn't have any fingerprints, so they didn't know what to do with him. Eventually, they were able to verify his, his medical condition. So this case actually led to recommendations for patients with this condition to carry a letter mm-hmm. on them from their physician describing their medical condition and why they don't have any fingerprints. Um, and there have been other cases similarly reported of patients losing their fingerprints from as a side effect of this chemotherapy. Interesting. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, so I guess we'll go back to number one. Epidemiologists warn of a surge in the incidence of leprosy in India and other parts of Asia, which they fear may return to epidemic proportions. And that one is the fiction. 
Mm. <laughs> good, good job, Rebecca. <laughs> and you're right. This, right. I did take this from the real item was the oldest evidence of leprosy found in India. <laughs> I win. <laughs> so that's bullshit. This is rigged. <laughs> they were they were able to find evidence of Mycobacterium leprae from a 4,000-year-old skeleton from India, and this is now the oldest evidence of human infection with this disease. Yeah. This is published in the journal PLOS One, or the Public Library of Science One. It's a medical online peer-reviewed medical journal. It uh, demonstrates that leprosy was present in human populations in India at the very beginning of civilization, 2000 BC. I thought you were going to say it was in the leprosy journal. Which I subscribe to. My editions always seem to fall apart, though, as they come through the mail. I don't know why. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Leprosy is not surging. Is that part I made up? Uh, and it's you know whether or not you consider it an epidemic is a matter of definition. But it, it it's simmering along. But the the uh, World Health Organization reports that ninety nine point nine percent of regional populations have eliminated the disease. So it's pretty decreased. Until they get Jenny McCarthy to come back. Yeah, the back. last real outbreak that I could find was in the 1980s. So the prevalence of leprosy has dropped 85% over the last 10 years. So it's actually on the wane. Thank What's goodness. interesting is that leprosy is not very contagious. It's, it actually takes a long-term intimate contact in order to spread the disease. So oh. the people who are at risk are really family members, you know, people living with somebody with leprosy over years. That's that's almost what it takes to really spread it. So it doesn't spread very easily or very quickly. But it's a chronic disease. Once you have it, you have it. What was that whole bit with like you know people being like in the catacombs in Rome and all that, and that's like leprosy spread like crazy there. What is true about the sort of it, the classic image we have of leprosy of these sort of leper colonies on the edges of urban centers? It was a disease that really didn't start to spread in human populations until we really were crowded together in urban locations. Again, it it really requires a high density to spread because it is so minimally contagious. Uh, so it, it really did crop up for the first time in the first cities, you know, in the first civilizations in the first cities, and they did keep lepers segregated on the out on the outskirts of these urban centers where it was spreading. So that much is true, but it really isn't very contagious, you know, as I said, which means that researchers find that in the last 18 years, the percentage of Americans following basic healthy lifestyle recommendations has declined is science, (laughs) is also science. Uh, In fact, Americans are uh, getting less healthy. So here, here are the, these are two large-scale studies of the U.S. population, 1988 to 1994, compared to 2001 to 2006, so encompassing a total of 18 years. And they looked at uh, adults 40 to 74 years old, and what they found was that, so one healthy lifestyle factor that they looked at was maintaining a body mass index less than 30 and the number of people, or looked at the other way, the number of people who have a body mass index greater than 30 has increased from 28% to 36%. Oh, so my God. That's, so everyone knows that Americans are getting fatter, right? That's old news. So that, so that one was, uh, was obvious. However, physical activity 12 times a month or more, so it's basically you know, you're working out three days a week, decreased from 53% to 43%. Ouch. 
Smoking rates have not changed significantly, 26.9% to 26.1%. So really a minimal decrease, 2069 to 26.1%. Eating five or more fruits and vegetables a day has decreased from 42% to 26%. And moderate alcohol use has increased from 40% to 51%. So, So increasing too much alcohol use. The number wow. of people adhering to all five healthy habits has decreased from 15% to 8%. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's bad. So we're going in the wrong direction despite all of the public awareness and, you know, really pushing it. People are just not adhering to these well-established healthy lifestyles. I'm guessing that's only going to get worse now that the economy is tanked too. People tend to drink more. <laughs> yeah, probably. Exercise less. E- eat cheaper food, which tends to be more high caloric. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. You, know, you wonder, so what are we not doing that we should be doing? What are we doing wrong? You know, of course, I know a lot of people will blame physicians, but honestly, you know, the evidence shows that physicians have a pretty minimal effect on these things. Yes, we should be telling patients don't smoke. You know, lose weight, eat better, and we do. I mean, that's now so much a part of just basic medical care that you know, physicians basically are telling patients to do these things, but the evidence shows that it just doesn't have that much of an impact. Yeah, well, you know, but I, I think there's no, you're not going to be able to pinpoint anyone. Yeah, thing. I agree. I mean, it's not the doctors, it's, you know, it's it's personal responsibility, it's crap marketing, it's, you know, awful companies pushing awful products, you know, it's all those things together. So, yeah, we just suck. I agree. I, I would, but we do like to find our favorite things that we to blame, right? So we'll, all we'll right. each find the thing that we that we dislike and blame that. Like for I, I like to blame the self help industry, which I think distracts people from the real answers by selling them the cheap and easy answers that don't actually work, right? So, yeah, I think that's part of it. So anyway, I won. So Rebecca so won. Cool. Yeah, Rebecca won. Good job. You yeah, guys yeah, all yeah, tanked. It all fell for my leprosy dodge. Ah. <laughs> Evan, what? remind me what you played last week again for Who's That Noisy? And what was that thumping noise? That was the recording of, the, of a fish, if you can believe it. The, and specifically, the Atlantic croaker fish. A reco- Atlantic croaker. A recording made by scientists from the University of Rhode Island from 1962. It reminded me a little bit of electric eels. Have you ever like been at the aquarium and they have yeah. the microphone electric eel tank? And when it yeah. sets off the discharges, up. it kind of, w- yeah, kind of sounds like that. That was, I think, the best yeah. guess. And someone from the message boards actually did guess electric eel, which I guess was the closest. Did anyone guess? No. Croker. No, nobody guessed the Atlantic Ooh. croaker. This was a very, very tough one. A lot of, a lot of people guessed woodpeckers. And I was surprised that some people guessed the ivory-billed woodpecker. I mean, <laughs> yeah, come yeah, on, that's funny. <laughs> you don't think you would have heard about that on the SGU if we discovered the ivory-billed woodpecker? I hope you've got an easier one this time. Yeah, I think I do. Well, at least it's a, a person, but you'll hear in just a second. So here's this week's. Who's that noisy? 
That might be a pretty effective demonstration of my supernatural abilities. But if there's one thing I want you guys to take away from this talk, it's that no matter whether you see it in print, whether you see it on TV, whether you hear about it from a friend, if it sounds supernatural, if it sounds beyond what's possible, you better believe that you are not getting the entire story. All right, there you go. Who is that? Identify him. And good luck. Jay, do you have a quote for us? I have a cool quote tonight sent in by a listener named Ian Blackstone. And Ian sent me a quote by Elbot. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard about Elbot. I thought this was incredible. I love things like this. Elbot is actually a chatterbox program, which is a computer program that is designed to simulate intelligent conversation. So what they do is they, they have this textual conversation between Elbot and humans, and they test how many humans and for how long they can fool the humans into uh, believing that this is actually another human that they're chatting with. Um, this type of test was created by a man named Alan Turing, and if you've ever heard of the Turing test, that is the test. The test is, can a human decide whether they're talking to a machine or another human? But the quote is actually from a conversation that somebody had with Elbot. I have adequately answered all your inquiries. I ask you to quietly rephrase these inquiries to yourself until they match my replies. Elbot didn't actually speak in a computer-generated voice, and um, the reason why I did that was I just thought it was funny that Elbot kind of gave back a really witty answer to to the question, I guess, that the human was asking. So, So there it is. Well, thank you for joining me, everyone, this week. Thank you. Well done Certainly. on 201. Good, good job. Always a pleasure. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.